Welcome to PR for Humans with me, Mike Sargent, the show for the best communications people. Each week I'm hearing their stories and using the insights in the book I'm writing about cutting through the secrets of the best business storytellers. Do follow me on Twitter at PR for Humans, Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn. Visit my website, sergeantleaders.com. You spell sergeant just like the police and the army do. Today we're going to the consumer end of the market. I popped into Hope and Glory, one of the hottest agencies at the moment, to spend half an hour with co-founder James Gordon McIntosh. He's one of the most intelligent and interesting people I've met recently in the industry. This episode is jam-packed with material that anyone in communications can be thinking about and using. Here he is. James, here we are in the lovely offices of Hope and Glory. What is Hope and Glory? Uh, So we describe ourselves, I suppose, as a communications agency. Um, There was a a wonderful phase about two or three years ago where uh, a raft of PR agencies decided suddenly to stop calling themselves PR agencies um, and for whatever reason decided to embrace a brave new world of uh, communications and I think we've probably gone a step even further than that which is to say actually we are simply a brand and lifestyle agency and that we can do a whole variety of different things uh, for clients. And what was it about PR that seemed to acquire this stigma? Was it was it was it spin? Was it the kind of perception of lavish celebrity champagne fueled parties? Or what, what? What's why? Did, why did the industry turn its back on public relations, which at the end of the day is is just relating to the public? So, um, because I think although. Well, you're absolutely right. Originally, PR was relating to the public in whatever form you happen to um, choose. But I think over time it became overly associated with delivering editorial media coverage, getting products on page, and that there were a group of agencies that, I think by dint of two things really, one, the development of new skills, but also the permission of clients, um, realised that they could do far more than that. And so far from simply getting editorial coverage for clients now, we will find ourselves creating events or making content, what a wonderful word content is, um, as well as uh, delivering uh, products on page or, or indeed that old-fashioned um, media coverage. So I think we, we embraced the opportunity and somehow PR as a moniker felt a little bit limiting to mm. that. And, and the, the world of journalism and, and traditional media obviously was, was shrinking, there were fewer journalists, many, many more PR people, and I know from being on the other side of the the fence uh, just how much spam was coming my way and how much poor quality PR there was and so many agencies competing for smaller and smaller amounts of of coverage, which is diminishing returns. And so, yes, embrace the wider world of communications and and brand, which is what you're doing here. Well, I think that's sort of true. I mean, I I, I think it's interesting now that actually there there is almost more media... Um, than when um, I originally grew up in, in the public relations industry. I mean, there were however many national papers. Um, there are only, what, one less uh, now, the Independent, uh, sadly now only online, um, to go after. There were the regionals. Um, and then there were obviously, well, you know, really three, maybe five or six serious broadcasters, uh, depending on whether you were um, fancied CNN or CNBC and you had a city story. But otherwise, actually, the media, when you know, certainly I grew up in in the public relations industry, late nineties, um, early noughties, was pretty limited, to be honest with you. I mean, I think that um, if anything, there has been an explosion 
of um, media opportunity over the time that I've worked in the industry. I also think, though, that you're right in so far as it is harder to achieve any impact as a result of that. Um, and that as a result of that, you know, PR has had to get better and a little bit more impactful. Equally, you're right that editorial is not the only string in the average um, agency's bow anymore. And I think, again, that's a little bit because over the last five years, certainly, a lot of brands have become media owners. They've started to have one-to-one relationships with some of their customers, or at least with their audiences through their own through social media and through through their own through their own um, you know social media channels in particular. Um, and technology has certainly enabled that, and that has in turn created an appetite for, you know, storytelling through those channels, which is something that we've always been well placed to deliver. And that's you know very much the focus of of, of this podcast, and, and what what I try to to do is to tell stories for companies because we're living in a world that's absolutely, you know, drowning in content. There's more there's more of it out there than anyone than anyone could ever uh, watch or listen to or read. It's so easy to share things. So in, in that world, how do, you, how do you cut through? How do you get noticed? What kind of things actually work, really do change the attitude of your audience, your, your, your consumers or whoever you're trying to reach? Um, I read a very good quote the other day, actually, which um, broadly speaking said that um, in PR you are in a form of marketing and you should never forget that you're crashing the party. But equally, if you're going to crash the party, then you better bring champagne. <laughs> and I kind of think that the best PR is the, um, is the champagne of the party, to be perfectly honest with you. It's stuff that makes people laugh, makes people smile, makes people think, sometimes makes people double take. Uh, it's got to be surprising and it's got to be interesting and I think there is a true art to finding new ways often of telling the same story for a client because they don't have that many stories that they want to tell um, time and time again in ways that are relevant and interesting to people who want to hear them. And this strikes me as the big difference between a lot of, a lot of corporate communications and a lot of the, the sort of high-end city agencies doing corporate financial and financial and perhaps what you do and what happens here has got to be more fun. It's got to be more arresting. It's got to. It's got to stop you in your tracks and think that that for whatever reason that made me smile, that made me laugh, that made me engage. I think that's right. I mean, you know, I think with with a lot of city PR, although I think there are opportunities occasionally missed to actually get a consumer message um, out through those corporate communications. You know, there is an audience out there that are interested. And they have a vested interest in, in what those um, brands and businesses are doing because they're investors or because they're analysts. Somewhere along the line, there is a vested interest in, in hearing those stories. I think you're right that, generally speaking, consumers aren't that interested or excited about what's happening in uh, baked beans this week uh, <laughs> or particularly uh, the backstory of a, of a chocolate bar. So I think from that perspective, yes, consumer brand communications has to work a little bit harder to tell a story. Um, and to get it across, as you say, in a way that's arresting. And some people might associate this world with uh, PR stunts and you know, uh, an inflatable house on the Thames or a giant orange juice carton uh, in Westminster or people wearing yellow jackets, whatever it is. Is that an unfair representation or is, is it important to sometimes do those things that just create a fun image or get people talking? I think that it is to some degree 
unfair. Um, I think that it is unfair to say that the best consumer brand PR delivers stunts for the sake of stunts. Although I think a proportion of less brilliant consumer brand PR does undoubtedly do that. Thankfully, I think, generally speaking, um, you don't see them because people don't tend to write about them. Uh, I think the best stunts, and this is where you know, I hope that we as an agency deliver for our clients, have a core of consumer insight or a core of brand insight and that there is a good, solid, strategic reason somewhere beneath the stunt um, for, for doing it, um, even if from time to time it might not be immediately apparent what that very good reason is. Um, so, yes, our quarter of the PR industry is probably famous for its stunts. Um, it is unfair to say that that's all we do. I think we do a lot more than that. I think there is a lot that goes on uh, other than that, but I also think that you know PR stunts and good ones that work aren't easy either. You know, you you don't so see much has been done, and you know, coming up with something new is is um, you know is challenging. I mean, I think we we probably hold the title as the agency, um, the last agency to float something big down the Thames successfully um, <laughs> with with Airbnb. I think we um, we probably killed that golden goose um, in in that it's very same act, um, and and we are very much guilty as charged. Um, you know, people have got to come up with uh, with new ways of doing it. Um, so yes, there is undoubtedly a pressure to come up with new um, and creative ways of, of of delivering those messages with some impact and scale, and in a way that yeah, people you know will will smile. Um, but thankfully, I think the best consumer PR continues to do that. And you mentioned creativity. So, so what, what's the process of coming up with ideas? Because your success or failure will ultimately be, be determined by the ideas that you have as an agency. You're really at the sharp end of, of creativity in that sense, whereas a lot of corporate and financial agencies or public affairs agencies might be able to survive through their relationships or through their you know, strategic advice or whatever it is. But you, you have to come up with with the creative goods, don't you? So, so how, do you, how do you do that? Well, so I would say that, the, I, mean, I mean, I think um, one of the great misconceptions, um, although I'm not you know, going to fight their corner for, for, for too long in my response to that one, is that um, corporate and city PR isn't um, creative. I think it is undoubtedly creative. It's just creativity expressed in a different um, way. There is a huge amount of intellectual creativity, for want of a better term, that goes into um, that uh, field. That said, yes, you're right. Um, we do have to come up with ever-increasingly odd, sometimes, ways of tackling a client problem. And we have a variety of different ways of doing it. Uh, we have creative directors um, around, the, around the agency. There are people who are well-skilled, well-versed in coming up with and then developing an idea and making sure that it can be delivered and will get results at the end of the day. We also have quite a democratic, I would say, process of trying to get everyone involved in the process of coming up with ideas because ultimately you get different ideas from different places and different people with different backgrounds, different insights and different experiences and that can take you to some new and unexpected places. And so is that I think a classic kind of brainstorming process? Get people in a room, get some flip charts. I mean, what, what do you actually yes do? Yes and no. I mean, we um, we we have for the last certainly couple of years avoided um, crowding people into a room with very little brief, um, sitting them around a boardroom table and shouting "Have ideas" <laughs> uh, at them. Um, so we now spend, I would say, a lot more time working out what the brief is first of all, and really honing in on exactly what we're trying to do 
as well as a territory that will yield good ideas. Um, we will then generally allot an hour and a half and do a number of exercises that we've developed, actually with one of the guys who does um, creativity training at Google, who we invested a reasonable sum of money in, um, although thankfully it was a, a, an investment with return, uh, doing a, a number of exercises, um, getting people out on the streets, talking about things, getting people to hit the internet, getting people to think about people who might have weird perspectives on the challenge that we're trying to approach and getting them to look at that challenge through their eyes to come up with new creative ideas. Um, there are a whole variety of different tools that we've that we've started to use and that we begged, borrowed and in a couple of cases stolen um, <laughs> that keep that thinking process fresh because I think that the worst thing that an agency can do is put a number of people in a room around a table and expect them to come up with genius. It happens from time to time but that is more by luck than... Uh, by design and I think we'd much rather have creativity by design which can be done um, if you get a culture that, that encourages that and values it. And, and you, you mentioned the brief and getting really real clarity about what is actually the goal of, of, of your activity and one thing that struck me in, in the PR world was, was how often the, the client didn't really seem to know what they wanted at least at, at the outset and they worked with the agency to find out what they wanted as well as how to do it. Did you find that happens a lot in your work? It does happen a fair amount, and I think that that's... I think that brings a different challenge. Um, I think that we would always say that the best brief is one where there is a degree of clarity but there is still latitude to develop something, and that actually the blank sheet of paper, which is the we're not really sure what you, we want, can, can you come up with something, is as challenging as the tightly confined box with a series of restrictions within which you have to come up with creative ideas. Actually, I think the middle ground of we've got a rough idea but we're open to it being challenged is the, the place that we would always, you know, I think tend to find that we deliver the best work. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, blank sheets of paper are interesting. I, it's a brilliant opportunity, I think, to to you know to intellectualise a problem, I guess, um, and to come up with interesting solutions. But at the same time, uh, knowing nothing is sometimes very dangerous, and having nowhere to start can be as intimidating as as, uh, <laughs> as having very tight confines. Yes, I agree. And coming from a television background, I'm interested in in visual storytelling. Um, I just wondered how big a part of your activities that is. I mean, presumably, it's just as important to tell stories in, in pictures as as in, as in words, or if, if not more important, given that the channels that you're often targeting. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I think that um, you know, in, in large part, actually driven driven by the rise of uh, and the development really of, of online media. Uh, you know, a great picture is as valued as clickbait um, by some of the online publishers um, as is a great story in words. Uh, likewise, video has become, you know, a pretty big deal and there are a lot of publishers out there that look to the PR industry to deliver content against which they can cheerfully sell pre-roll. Um, and so that has meant that the assets and the way that we tell stories, the things that we think about when we're creating ideas has changed. You know, once upon a time it was... You know, what's the first paragraph? How do we get the news line into it? What's the headline? Uh, these days, it's okay, well, what's the first paragraph and what's the headline or the pun or whatever it may be? But likewise, what's the picture that goes alongside it? 
you know, what's the video that we can use to tell the backstory of it or, or, or start to add uh, a degree of richness in the assets that we put around a story. And that's, that's driven really by two things, one of which, as I say, is that, is that online piece, and I think the other piece is uh, driven by the fact that so many of the media owners are less rich, let us say, in their own resources, mm-hmm. and therefore, you know, as a PR industry, I think we've always been very happy to fill the gaps that the editorial media can't fill themselves. Uh, obviously in the um, sole interest and service of our clients. A lot of focus in recent years on, on content marketing and, and one thing that struck me again in, in my three years in, in agency was how more and more of what we were doing seemed to be not pure PR uh, but actually forms of content marketing, creating things and occasionally paying for them to be distributed and transmitted as well and that clarity you once had with you know advertising on one side and kind of PR on the other um, perhaps didn't exist so much anymore is that your feeling as well that's I think that's undoubtedly the case Um, you know I think the reality is that there are very few major advertising agencies that will particularly be looking at the work content-wise, created by the PR industry and quaking, quaking in their boots. You know, I don't think we're about to uh, create a revolution in which uh, traditional above-the-line agencies are overturned in favour of uh, PR agencies. Uh, because they, kind of they've work. got so much more experience in content and because they've got they've bigger budgets. So more experience, because they've got the bigger budgets, because they, uh, they are probably better than most people in the PR industry actually at the craft of making that stuff. But that said, I also think that you're absolutely right. There are more and more clients who will turn to us as a brand agency and say, we need content to bring this story to life. And I think that sometimes the you know, the fact that we are probably a little bit more open to storytelling, that we are less obsessed by the size of the logo and uh, some of the, the kind of craft details in the content that we make means that we do that partly more cost effectively but that also we have a little more latitude in, in the storytelling actually uh, we can find stories that step perhaps a little a little bit further away than a brand manager would be comfortable with from the core message and that creates more interesting and more engaging content as a result whereas I think that some of the other marketing disciplines remain and quite rightly obsessed by the message Mm. Um, and perhaps the quality of the content or the degree to which that content is engaging suffers as a result of that obsession. What makes a good story? Maybe it's an impossibly broad question but are there any um, principles, tips that you might be able to pass on to somebody who's maybe coming up through the, the PR industry and they're sort of saying, well, you know, I hear all this talk about storytelling and stories, but w- what does that actually mean? I think that I would answer that by recalling um, sitting at about 3.30 in the afternoon uh, with a personal finance journalist by the name of Edmund Turbot, um, who is a venerable old soul and, and a, a brilliant bastion of Fleet Street. And um, I was relatively young in my PR career. Uh, we were still having lunch um, and had cracked onto another bottle of wine and I was starting to get a little nervous about how much trouble I was going to be in uh, when I got back to the office. Um, but we, the old days. We, we, the halcyon days. Um, we, we took to playing a game which was, broadly speaking, uh, one in which he instructed me as to the perfect 
tabloid headline. And the best headline that I can still remember from that lunch, and I still use it with the team today, is uh, transsexual bishop resuscitates prince's million pound polo pony. <laughs> it's got it all. Uh, it's got it all. So it's got the classics, right? It's got yeah. a bit of religion, a bit of sex, a bit of health, uh, money, um, animals, uh, and sport. Now, if you can cram all of those things into a story, or at least one or two of them, then you're probably getting towards a decent <laughs> story, at least for the great British tabloid media. And I think that I'm going to use that in my media training with my with my high end city it's, clients, it's, asset yeah. managers, and, and the like. It's exactly <clears throat> that. You know, how do you how do you get a bit of that into uh, you know into a story? Um, and I think you know, I, I, to be honest with you, I think that you know that list of six or seven things um, changes over time. Uh, you know, at the moment, uh, donuts seem to be you know a pretty core thing to getting uh, editorial media coverage. Uh, we went through the cap phase, uh, obviously a while ago, where where everyone was pretty obsessed by that. Um, and then somewhere in the middle there, there was the zombie phase that the PR industry cheerfully um, went you know went through. Um, but I think that partly, therefore, there are some good old fashioned what are people interested in hearing about uh, rules that apply to good storytelling. I think at the same time that that should always be combined with what's the zeitgeist, what are people interested in now that will give this a bit of relevance and a bit of edge. Um, but ultimately, you know, I think that people, you know, there is a real thirst for interesting stories, you know, and I think that in a world where there are so many stories, there are so many places where you can find them now that a really good, well-crafted piece of storytelling can still cut through. And the char- characters are important, aren't they? I, mean, I think to, they to, really are. To yeah, have I a human being at the centre of it all you can somehow connect with. I think that's often true. You know, I think that whether it's a, a, a character in a story that you can connect with... Um, we've just made um, some, some films for an exhibition uh, for Facebook, uh, which, which sought to really try and bring to life the wonderful communities and groups that, that Facebook um, brings together in one place and we, we worked with a wonderful lady called Lena who is from uh, Finland and is a member of the very old skateboarders and she's a 60 something skateboarder <laughs> and her story and the very old skateboarders group captured the imagination because you're absolutely right it was a brilliant piece of human storytelling Equally, though, and I think this is where the PR industry has, has changed and perhaps why you know, people float fewer things down the Thames. Not that that's a bad thing, incidentally. Um, it's good that people don't float things down the Thames anymore. But certainly I think we've moved from an era of, um, of observation um, in PR to an era of participation in PR. And I think that you know, the media really calls out for, well, it's really interesting, but if only I can come and then I'm going to tell my readers about some awesome thing I did that they can't do then there's no interest in that that doesn't matter to me anymore actually what I want to do is come experience something amazing and then tell my readers how they can do it too yeah experiential this is sometimes well I think experiential is one bit of it I think it's also that sense of I can get my hands on that too Um, it's not broadcasting it's not just from some tower in London out to the masses it's, it's that it's two exactly way that. thing you know, I think it's that sense that once upon a time journalists existed in a world beyond you know beyond the velvet rope and actually everyone's realised that you know everybody else should be able to get over that rope as well um, and, and get a little bit of the interesting and exciting thing 
that the person um, who they're you know watching or, or reading the content of has experienced. And, and yes, that does go from you know pop-ups. We we live in a wonderful pop-up era. Uh, it's uh, it's a, a brilliant world for the PR industry right now. But likewise, you know, I give you an example of Deliveroo. This week we we created. Um, Engagement ring donuts, um, or donuts, donuts, I should say, um, as as they were also um, called, or eye donuts. I, there were a whole series of them. Um, puns coming out of our ears. Um, that story was lovely. You know, it was a pair of donuts. There are only twelve pairs of them available, but they were available on Deliveroo, and you could buy them. And I think that fifteen or so years ago, you know, a restaurant somewhere with a bit of creative panache might have done that and gone, here they are, taking some photos of it, and it would have got some decent coverage if they'd got a celebrity eating it. I think now, though, that, and this is the shift, people want to be able to get that for themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily experiential, but it is certainly enabling real people to participate in the story. And I think that's a really important part, and certainly a shift that I've seen in the time that I've been in the industry. Interesting, very interesting. You're building a business here. So, a final question, really. You, you, you're building a very successful business, and it's growing very, very quickly. So, um, how are you doing it? What advice do you have for anyone else trying to build a business? What do, what do you look for when you're when you're recruiting? When you're trying to grow? Do you have an overall strategy, or is it just kind of see what clients come along, see who comes through the door, see who we can recruit, and just one day after the next? I think it's a bit of both. Um, we're now six years old. Joe and I, Joe's the other um, founder and managing partner, sat down just as we approached our fifth birthday, actually, and we suddenly realised that we had a team of, at the time, 55-odd people, and that, actually, the kind of common purpose of the agency, which Joe and I were very clear on, and for a long time had spread almost by osmosis through the team as they'd come through the door, um, was probably less tangibly felt by everyone in the building. And so we actually went through a process, um, which was horrendous for me, but actually I think getting over that and embracing it is very important, um, of saying, okay, let's define our purpose and put it in words and stand up and present it um, to, to the team. And we, we did that, and it's a very simple process. And a very simple purpose. Uh, we exist to create work that people talk about. And first of all, we that, that sort of appealed to us because it's it's what Joe and I really love doing. It's as simple as that. That is, that is it. It is as simple yeah. as that. That's why yeah. we get up in the morning. Mm. Now, there's enormous complexity in actually delivering it, mm. but as a simple, single-minded, this is why we're here, actually it's achievable, you know, true to the business um, and the work that we'd already been doing. Um, applicable to the market and something that clients actually want to buy which is, is always important um, but also something that actually we enjoy doing you know, mm. I think the fundamental of it is, is you know, doing what we genuinely enjoyed in, 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 and, and that's really important because if you, if you don't genuinely enjoy it you will set out a purpose and then you'll make posters of it and you'll stick them up on the walls in the office and no one will ever actually live it um, it'll just be a wonderful thing that was said so I would always say that um, you know, you've got to take a team uh, along on a common purpose and that for a long time as a growing agency you can let that happen by almost osmosis and, and it will spread I think there has to come a time where you acknowledge that and embrace the fact that you've, you've got to articulate it and I think that the other and it's something about getting past some 50 people that you, you can't be that very very tight group anymore you, you've got to 
define things more I think, more publicly. As well. I'm not sure whether it's fifty or, or whether it or whether that comes down to the structure of the business that you happen to run. I think that as soon as you realise that if someone's mum said, what's the purpose of the agency for which you work? If they weren't able to trot out an answer fairly accurately and close to the one that you would trot out, then you've got to address that and you've got to close that gap. And that's really important. Um, and then I think there are some other things we do. You know, I mean, we, 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 as I say, we have that very simple, this is our, the purpose of the agency is why we come in. I think that for the team themselves, Joe and I have always said that we want to be the agency that one day in the future, an intern or an account exec or an account director, who might not be with us anymore, might be doing some other job, but will look back and say, actually, those years at Hope and Glory are the reason that I'm here today. And that actually, if I hadn't been in that agency at that time doing that work with that group of people, I wouldn't have learned a bunch of stuff that has got me to where I am now. And so I think being the best agency that anyone in the business ever worked for, but not necessarily the last agency, yeah. is, is also something that, that sort of guides the business. And those two philosophies, I think, create great work and be the best place that anyone worked at the time in their career that they were here are the two governing principles of the agency and probably the two that will hopefully see us continue to succeed. Very good principles indeed. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been great. I enjoyed that conversation a lot. In part of the PR market that sometimes feels silly and lightweight, James and his team at Hope and Glory are the opposite. Really clever and interesting PR pros. That's it for today. Please do listen in next time to the PR for Humans podcast with me, Mike Sargent. Thanks so much for your time. Goodbye.